Hey, everybody. Welcome to Uncomfortable. I'm really excited to welcome in our studio here in New York today, leader Stacey Abrams. She's a, uh, was until August at least, leader of the minority party in the Georgia House of Representatives and stepped down to launch your gubernatorial uh, candidacy. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So there's a lot to talk about. There's been news coming out every other week about this race. It's a race a lot of people are paying attention to. And I want to talk about that and the reasons for that. But first, we always like to hear why people come to do the things that they do. You've talked about service being really important to you. So I want to know where you grew up. Tell me about your family. Tell me about you. So I'm originally from Mississippi. I grew up in Gulfport. My parents are from Hattiesburg, uh, which is a little bit further north. And this is interesting only to people from Mississippi. But um, (laughs) (laughs) so I grew up in Gulfport. My parents, uh, my mom was a college librarian. My dad was a shipyard worker. Uh, and despite having college degrees and working hard, we struggled. My mom likes to call us the genteel poor. We had no money, but we watched PBS and we read books. And for them, there were three rules in our house because they knew that we could do better. And so we had to go to church, we had to go to school, and we had to take care of each other. Um, the importance of the way my parents raised us, and there are six of us, mm-hmm. was that they really believed that where we started was not going to dictate where we ended up. That even though we struggled with poverty, they'd overcome dramatic poverty that was so much worse than anything I experienced as a child. And even though we were working poor, my parents believed that as the next generation, we would do even better. And so they wanted their children to go to college and to remember that we were part of a larger society. Uh, They would tell us that no matter how little we had, there was someone with less. And your job is to serve that person. So that meant volunteering at soup kitchens and homeless shelters, going to public housing facilities and juvenile justice facilities. It was about making sure that even if we didn't have running water at home Mm -hmm. or if we didn't know where our next meal was coming from, that we never wallowed in our circumstances. They wanted us to work to lift other people up. They took it so seriously that they decided to become permanently poor and became United Methodist ministers. <laughs> so, <laughs> and they did that later in life. They did. Right? They you were. and your siblings were all what young in age. And so there's because there are six of us. Yeah. There's always someone who's a child at the time. Sure. But um, my older sister had just started college. I was a junior. Everyone else was either in junior high school or elementary school. Okay. And my parents were forty years old. Why did they decide to do that? Because they truly believe uh, in their calling. They had always been very committed to social justice. They were involved in the civil rights movement as teenagers. And as adults, they had, they'd raised their children in the social justice movement. Um, but for them, it was also religious. You know, my mom and dad were both called to the ministry and believed that their steps forward required that they do some from the platform of the church. Wow. And so that they must both have been a huge shift for your family. It was, well, it, I will say this. My parents had not always been ministers, but they'd always been very religious and they'd always made certain church was the center of how we lived. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think because we were United Methodists and it was, it's the Methodist tradition is really grounded in the tradition of service. Mm-hmm. Uh, the founder of our you know branch of Christianity, uh, John Wesley did a great deal of work with prisoners and with social service. And then mom and dad, because they thought, and and this is part of just how they raised us. If you're going to do something, you need to know how to do it. 
And so rather than just become pastors, they both applied to Emory University at the age of 40 and were both admitted to one of the top universities in the country. So they packed us up and moved to divinity us school. To divinity to school. To study before they went on to become exactly. ministers. Education was something that they drilled in you yeah, absolutely. early. And you lived up to that standard. I did. Well, oh, you, you don't get to complain in our family. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, where are you in the lineup? You're one of so six I'm number kids. two. Number two. Okay. Was there pressure to kind of set an example for numbers three through six? There's always pressure. I mean, yeah. what mom and dad taught us, we were responsible for each other. We were actually each assigned a child. So my younger brother, Richard, was my responsibility. Really? Um, Yes, he used to wake me up at ungodly hours to get him cereal because I was I I was the one who could he could bother. Oh, so such a fun system. Not fun when you're growing up, I'm sure. <laughs> no. um, back to education for a second, though. Real quick hit list of your resume because it is just so impressive. You went to Spelman College, you graduated uh, magna cum laude. You went on to Yale Law School. Then you got a master's in public affairs from the University of Texas. You worked as an attorney for a while mm-hmm. and then decided to run for office in 2006. Correct. Why did you decide to do that? This was to to take a ha- uh, run for a seat in the mm-hmm. Georgia State House, right? Why right. that switch? So I was a tax attorney first, and yeah. then I moved from there to become a deputy city attorney for the city of Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Part of my job was working at the state capitol, helping protect th- the city uh, during the legislative session and make certain that the bills that were being passed were really helpful to the city or not harmful. Mm-hmm. And the more I did that work, uh, and the more I thought about the space I wanted to occupy in public service, I realized that I had a set of skills, uh, both as a lawyer, as someone who believes in social justice, um, as someone with tax expertise, and as someone who really believes in good public policy. The seat came open, and I decided to run for it, and got elected. What was that experience like? First time candidacy is always sort of a learning curve, bit of a roller coaster. What was that like for you? It was it, it was a learning experience. I had two opponents, and I had only lived in the community for two years, mm-hmm. so I couldn't run on my deep history with the neighborhood. I couldn't run on previous experience. So I ran as a technocrat. Basically, I ran on the theory I understand government better than most people. I'd worked in the federal. Uh, I'd worked uh, interned as a federal intern. I'd been at the city of Atlanta. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I understood how government worked, and I really like policy. So I would do these Jeopardy-style games during my uh, campaign where I'd have people ask me just random questions about government. And so I think they elected me just because it was I was an oddity. <laughs> but I also worked really hard. I was very relentless. Because government is good if it's done well, and it helps people. And I wanted to be someone who could help people. And so I had an extraordinary opportunity to talk to vastly different folks in our district. Well, one of the reasons this um, gubernatorial race in 2018 is getting so much attention is because you stand to make a good bit of history if you win, if you make it through the Democratic primary and Mm -hmm. then win the governor's race. If you do win, you become the first African-American governor in Georgia state history Mm -hmm. ever, and also the first African-American female governor in American history ever. But it's fair to point out, you've already been making history, (laughs) Uh, which not a lot of people focus on. But just in Georgia alone, after you won your seat in 2000, you joined in 2007 then, mm-hmm. right? The um, House there. And then you became minority leader, which is to say the leader of the Democrats in 2011. Mm-hmm. You were the first woman to ever lead a party in the Georgia State House. I find that incredible that it took until 2011 for that to happen. I was actually the first woman to lead a party in the history of the state. Ever. Ever. Either chamber, either party. 
Okay, help me understand. So what is the, tell me what I need to know either about the way politics in Georgia work or the way the House there works. Why did it take that long? In politics, especially in state politics, it's true that most states have a remarkable imbalance of women. Uh, In Georgia, we are actually doing okay. About 24% of our legislators are women. Uh, But think about it. We're more than half the population. And so it takes a long time to, number one, get elected, number two, to be positioned for power. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, my, my, my ascension was fairly uh, unheralded. It was new. Now, I will give credit. There was a woman who became the Speaker Pro Tem. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was the first woman to hold a leadership position of that kind uh, in the Republican Party who was elected uh, right before me. But no one had ever been elected to actually lead a caucus and lead a party within the General Assembly. So based on your experience, because you you basically decided when you first ran for office, I want to do this, you inserted yourself in the process, you weren't recruited, then you had a a rapid ascension once you were in office. Why? I mean, this is not just a problem in Georgia, though, right? This is a problem across the country. From your experience, why do you think it is so bad? Is there not enough recruitment, not enough people as role models? It's a combination. One, it's hard to run. You have to raise a lot of money, and for a lot for most women, the idea of raising that amount of money is just daunting. Uh, there aren't a num- you don't have role models who show you how to do it, mm-hmm. and there's an internal dynamic that I've seen among women that doesn't seem to exist among men, where we believe we have to be experts before we stand for office. Uh, men wake up, some of them, and look in the mirror and think, I'm attractive. I should be in charge of something. Uh, women believe. Speaking I, <laughs> very broadly here. Yes, very broadly. <laughs> and not cast aspersion on, on all men. But it, men are more aggressive with their ambitions. Women and people of color in particular tend to be more reticent because we don't have models to follow, but because we also hold ourselves to a standard that's sometimes untenable and unachievable unless you have that job. Um, I think the other piece is that it's just hard. It's hard to raise money, especially if you aren't from privilege, because you don't know people with money. So raising it Mm -hmm. is difficult. And, And there's an internal dynamic where women shy away from asking for things for themselves. Uh, We don't mind raising money for an organization or a church or for a family. But the idea of standing up and saying, please give me money for my campaign. For me, for myself. Exactly. It makes us recoil. You think that's harder. But but here's the reality. I don't get to keep the money. (laughs) And once you realize that, it becomes a lot easier. Because I'm not saying invest in, give me your money. I'm saying invest in my vision and my service and my willingness to work. And I think more women have to think about it from that vantage point. So when you were first running, now I'm curious about this. If you didn't have role models, you didn't have people leading you through the process by the hand, how did you work around each of those things? How did you personally get over those hurdles? Well, I did have role models, but but sometimes we have to orchestrate our role models. Um, I knew women who had been in elected office, but I also read a lot and I attended sessions to teach me different pieces. And sometimes we have to jury rig our our learning. We yeah. have to draw from other areas of expertise to build what we need. And so when I say that women don't have role models, what I mean is that typically, unless you're watching someone on television, we rarely have personal experience. Mm-hmm. And it's that personal experience because it's easy to distance yourself to say, well, yes, she can do it. But how can I do it? I don't know anyone personally who has done this work. And so it's often about being able to see yourself as equal to someone that you can see on television or see standing in front of a camera talking about public policy. Um, 
it's hard, but but there's a fortitude I think women do have that if we tap into it, we can win. And I think that's what we saw happening in Virginia in those elections that just happened recently. I want to understand a little bit better some of the dynamics of internal politics in Georgia, because mm-hmm. I think it plays, it's very important, at least when trying to understand the governor's race. So when you took over the leadership in 2011, it was right after the 2010 sort of yes. shellacking of yes. Democrats across like the country. The, apocalypse, the mini apocalypse. Is that what you call it? That's yes. okay. It's a little nickname I have for it. Um, you did you decide to seek the leadership? Mm-hmm. Did you said this is the time that I wanted? Why in in the dark void of what <laughs> Democrats were facing at that time? And my understanding is in Georgia at least the Republicans were facing like the closest thing they'd had to a supermajority. Oh, yes. So you knew you were going to be up against Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Why did you decide to step up and lead then? Because we as a party had been losing for a few years, and 2010 was our nadir. It was the worst we'd ever done. We lost every statewide office. Eight people who were members of our party. After the election switched parties. Oh, yes. But but here's the thing. I've as I told my colleagues, I've been a minority for a very long time and I was really good at it. And, <laughs> and what I meant is that there you cannot win by pretending that the that where you stand doesn't exist. And we had spent time in the minority pretending we were still in the majority just you know, everyone forgot. And what like I wanted this was a temporary exactly position. that if we just you know closed our eyes and held our breath, we would somehow ascend again. And I knew that wasn't true, but I also knew that time was going to come where we could be in charge and we had to be prepared for it. And that meant convincing Georgians that they wanted Democrats to have power again. But it's easier to do that when you've always had to operate from a space of the minority where mm-hmm. you've never had true power, which means you've had to build coalitions, you've had to develop strategies, you've had to navigate spaces that most people who are used to being in privilege don't have to navigate. And I looked at us and I saw that where we were, we were not going to win for a really long time. But I also saw a path that if we did our work over the next decade, we would be positioned to be in charge. And I wanted to take the risk of being the one who led us in that direction. And as part of your leadership, one of the things I should point out, because now your critics are emerging, of course, the higher profile you take on, everyone has an opinion. But one of the things that's been consistent in some of the criticism is that in that leadership position, you've been accused of compromising too much, yes. is is the way that phrase goes. That instead of going up there and fighting and fighting and fighting for the same progressive values that you ran on, you were more willing to work with the Republican mm-hmm. leadership to get things done. So I'm curious how you you viewed that? I mean, because there's a sense of people voting for you to go and fight for them. But then once you're in the position, how do you know when to fight and when to sit down and talk? The fundamental responsibility of any elected official is to make the lives of the people you serve better. That's my beginning. Not political posturing, not achieving notches on the board, but making the lives of the people I serve better. And that, I believe, was the goal of every member in my caucus. And when the Republicans are in charge, when they are near a supermajority, literally outnumbering us nearly two to one, Mm -hmm. then the responsibility is to make certain that our constituents don't become the victims of their hubris. And the way you mitigate that, the way you solve for that is by talking to people, finding out what are you going to do and how do I make sure that if you're doing bad, it's less bad. But if you're willing to do good, that we can move good to great. And so there are moments where, no, if I were in charge, would I have done something different? Absolutely. But 
you have to serve people in the moment that you're in. Mm -hmm. And so when I saw, for example, that the Republicans were going to slash pre-K, which would have harmed families across the state of Georgia, I was unwilling to just hold my breath and say, on a, as a matter of principle, you shouldn't do this. When as a matter of practical behavior, I could say, let's work together to make sure you don't have to do this. But when you're running, when you're asking people for their votes to send you to mm-hmm. do a job on their behalf, you can't very well go around and say, I'm going to try to make things a little bit better for you. Things might get a little worse in some parts, but I'm going to try to do the best that I can. That's not what you run on, right? Of course not. What you run on is principle. You say, this is the vision I have for you. And here's how I want to get you there. But what people want to know is that when you're getting me to this place in the next 10 years, Mm -hmm. what's happening to me tomorrow? And if tomorrow means their child gets kicked out of pre-K, which means they have to take off in the middle of the day from work, that's not a reality that they want. They want their children to get the education that they need. If there's a tax bill that's going to raise your taxes, but if I just, you know, if I were righteously indignant, your taxes would go up, but you know I said no. They want their taxes not to go up. And so compromise is not about giving up our principles. It's about making sure that those principles are lived in a real way for actual people. But the other piece of this is most citizens, most residents, they understand compromise. They have to do it every day, that they don't get their way on everything. And they know sometimes you have to work with the other side to make things happen. I have never once compromised my principles on issues that are immutable. I stand firm and my caucus stands firm. But there's also never been a moment where I took a position where the rest of my caucus, by and large, didn't stand with me. Now, not everyone's going to always agree. But if you look at every position I've ever taken, more than 75 percent of the people in my caucus were standing there with me to get the work done. Do you look back on any of the negotiations or discussions you had then and say, I probably gave away a little too much there. I should have fought a little more. No. And and, and here's why. Because we have 40 days in a legislative session. That's not a lot of time. Mm -hmm. And we're not fighting just one battle. We're fighting 10 battles. What I like to believe is that when we make a decision, we make a decision based on the best evidence available and the best deal that we can get done that we've negotiated to the best of our ability. But it's one of the reasons I talk about how many members stand with me. Mm -hmm. I've never as leader taken a position that the caucus didn't agree to uh, because my job is to first get the best deal I can, but then to bring it to my members and say, "Okay, here's what I got for you. Do you want to do it? If you don't, we don't have to. But my responsibility as leader is to make the hard choices of having those conversations and getting what we can, but also bringing people together so that we know what we're asking for. One of the other uh, core tenets of your mission has been um, over time to register more voters. You actually founded something called the New Georgia Project, which has a goal of registering 800,000 new voters by 2024. Mm -hmm. Where are you in that process? You're no longer involved with the project, we should say, because it's separated from your candidacy. But where are you in that process? And why, particularly in Georgia, is that so important? In 2014, there were 800,000 unregistered people of color. That's roughly the population of South Dakota. And that means that you had nearly a million people whose children were in our school systems who weren't voting, who were being affected by choices made at the city council, state legislative levels, at the gubernatorial levels. Mm -hmm. These are 
eligible register uh, people who are eligible to be registered voters. And is Georgia unique in that way? It's unique in the sheer volume of people who it are is. unregistered because Georgia is a very large state right. that had a massive demographic shift between 2000 and 2010. Uh, between 2000 and 2010, 1.5 million people moved to Georgia, 80% of whom were people of color. 80%. 80%. Wow. Okay. And so you, the normal attrition rate of people who aren't registered just it exponentially grew. And so for me, the issue was beyond partisanship, about citizenship. Mm-hmm. People need to be at the table making choices. And so I launched the New Georgia Project to register those voters. And between 2014 and 2016, we've already registered 200,000. So we're right on track. And are those people, is it fair to say, more likely to be Democrats? They are. Statistically and, and speaking? Statistically speaking, because people of color tend to be more liberal than conservative in terms Mm -hmm. of their voting patterns. So race is a very strong predictor of voting patterns in the South in particular. And so, yes, they will be more likely to be Democrats. But for me, the issue was larger than that. It was the issue of having nearly a million people who simply had not become part of the body politic. That's dangerous for democracy, no matter which side of the aisle you stand on. So with that many people moving in that quickly, there's probably the normal sort of like, I didn't, I wasn't properly registered, mm-hmm. it wasn't a priority. Mm-hmm. But there's also the very real issue of exclusionary practices Absolutely. or voter suppression. Absolutely. And I was fascinated in preparing for this interview to go back and read that in 2016, there was actually an executive director of a, a Lawyers for Civil Rights group that said Georgia was what she considered ground zero. Mm-hmm for voter suppression. Does that surprise you? Did you see Not that? It, it is exactly why the New Georgia Project came into being. Part of the reason people weren't registering to vote was that it was so complicated and it was difficult to understand because for those of us who are politically aware, we understand the distinctions between voter suppression and voter disinterest, voter apathy. Um, but we also have these public conversations about all the things that are being done to stop people from voting. Mm-hmm. Imagine that this isn't what you think about every day of your life, but once in a while it it pops up in your head. And all you think about are all the times you've heard about voter suppression and how difficult it is. You're not going to act. Uh, and what Georgia's saying from the everyday voters the perspective, everyday voter, if they absolutely. hear it enough, they're going to say, why should I even try? Why should I even try? They're never going to count my vote. For me, the issue then was making sure they were registered, but going a step further, making sure they understood how to cast a ballot. Mm-hmm. So we actually did a video teaching people how to how to vote. Uh, and then heading into 2015, after we ran into just a terrible and egregious voter suppression, the Secretary of State refused to process 40,000 of our applicants. And over the next two years, we were able to sue and recover. Uh, we got him to add 18,000 after the election, and then he had to restore 33,000 illegally canceled registrations in 2016. These are people who came through your project. Through the project. And they just refused on the basis of what? The Secretary of State canceled them because he couldn't prove they were citizens. But he was using a flawed system that he wasn't allowed to use for that purpose. And so we were able to not only restore those who had registered through our project, but Mm -hmm. actually others who'd registered independently or had registered through other groups. But because of the sheer volume of our registrations, we saw a pattern where other people just thought it was them. How do you get around that? I mean, there's projects like this. You're door knocking what Mm -hmm. it's one to one kind of getting people Mm -hmm. involved, teaching them. 
800,000 people is a lot. That's enough to move elections one way or the other. Absolutely. Well, in Georgia, 250,000 can move an election. But but here's the thing. You have to start with the fundamentals and the infrastructure. Mm. And the New Georgia Project, luckily, has been part of a growing infrastructure. We were the largest group to do registration, but we work with Galeo, which works with Latino organizations, and with the Asians Americans Advancing Justice, who work with the um, Asian Pacific Islander community. Mm But the other piece of what the Secretary of State did was that he encouraged counties to shut down polling places. If you are... Just shut them down entirely? So there are fewer places you can actually go to to vote. Now, which sounds innocuous until you think about the fact that these are often in poor communities where people don't have transportation. So if your polling place is no longer down the street, but four miles away, and you don't have a car and there's no bus, how are you going to vote? And is that a financial justification that's given for these shutdowns? They argued it was financial, but for some of these, it was $5,000 saved. What is the price of democracy? And what's the value of democracy? And we were able to demonstrate in a number of cases that these were arbitrary decisions that had nothing to do with saving money and very much were about voter suppression. And then you have voter ID laws. Uh, Georgia is less egregious than some states, but are still bad. Mm -hmm. And so when you combine all those together, you find what we found in the 16 election, which is that sometimes people aren't voting not because they don't want to, but because we've made it so difficult, they don't know how to. Going back to 2016 now, just on the presidential level, Donald Trump did win Georgia, 51% mm-hmm. of the vote. Mm-hmm. Um, Hillary Clinton got 46%. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not a small margin by which he won. There was a majority of voters mm-hmm. there expressing their preference for Mr. Trump. But even when you just look at governor's races there over time, you've talked about these statistics a lot. When you look at how the demographic shifts have happened, the Democrats have been chipping away at that Absolutely. Republican lead when it comes to the gubernatorial race, right? So I know you said in twenty in two thousand six, Democrats lost by more than four hundred thousand, yep. and by twenty sixteen, you'd gotten that down to one hundred ninety seven thousand. One hundred ninety seven thousand is still a pretty big margin. It's a big gap to it, close. It's a significant gap, but we're talking about a state with six million voters. Mm-hmm. So you're not talking about a million votes. You're talking about two hundred thousand. And that's taking into consideration one number that people tend to leave out when they think about the viability of Georgia. In 2014, 1.1 million people cast ballots. Mm -hmm. But according to modeling, 1 million Democrats stayed home, didn't bother to vote at all. And these are voters who had voted either in 2008 or 2012 for President Obama. What that means is that there's a pool of voters available in midterm elections that we simply haven't engaged. And that's my critique of the elections of the past. Not that we don't have eligible voters, but that we haven't done the work of actually talking to them and turning them out. That's true of midterm elections across the country, though, right? That's not just specific to Georgia. It's not endemic to Georgia, but Georgia is particularly egregious in this in that we keep losing by a smaller and smaller margin because we're excluding a population, typically people of color, Mm -hmm. that we simply do not believe should should have the level of investment in their vote. And, and my point is not to exclude other voters, but that we have to in- aggressively and intentionally include voters of color because they are such a substantial portion of our electorate. Most people, when they think about Georgia, assume you know, we're 70-30, white to black, or maybe 60-40. Georgia today is 53% white, non-Hispanic, 47% people of color. We're at near parity in our composition, but not in our voting. And it's the responsibility of candidates like me to actually convince these voters that their choice should be to actually show up and vote. 
And I know that if we do that work, we can win elections. So how do you do that now? Which brings us to your race for uh, for governor. What is the strategy? What's the game plan? What are you doing differently that previous Democrats haven't done? Number one, I'm actually on the ground now. Uh, We're running a campaign where we are not waiting until next year. We're not waiting until after the primary. We are on the ground starting in June actually knocking on doors, making phone calls, talking to voters. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are some critiques of my campaign. It's called the burn rate, which is that we're spending too much money early. But the reality is we have to spend this money now because if we don't spend now, we will not reach the voters we need to reach either for the primary or the general because we have to talk to voters who are typically left out of the conversation. So back to the burn rate for a second. Mm -hmm. Is this something you've seen as a problem in previous campaigns that people were holding on to money in their coffers with the yes. expectation they'd spend it later? Yes, because typically what campaigns do is they raise money and then they hold it to spend on television. Uh, and so you get two benefits. One, you get to say, oh, I have this much money in the bank, which right. sounds great. Uh, and then you spend it all on television. Well, the reality is the voters we need to tackle and target are not watching MSNBC. <clears throat> They're not watching CNN. They're certainly watching ABC. But <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but, but they're not political they're not political animals. And so we have to reach them where they are. We have to reach the mom who's working two jobs and does not have time to watch television for politics. She watches it to unwind and to relax for the few hours she has off. She needs to hear from someone on the phone or someone knocking on her door or the guy working a double shift. These are people who have to have us come to where they are and not expect them to find us. And that's what's different about my campaign. We already have people on the ground knocking on doors, doing the voter contact that we need to do. And we've been extraordinarily successful so far. Um, But the second piece is the message. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of folks who don't vote simply because they don't see a difference between the Democratic candidate and the Republican candidate. I'm running as an unapologetic progressive. Uh, you will hear me sounding exactly the same regardless of the region of the state I'm in and certainly regardless of whether I'm running in a Democratic primary or a general election. People have to believe that the messenger and the message are authentic. And I believe that if they hear my message, if they know about my background, growing up in a working poor family, a, a working class family, having the kind of achievement that I've had, which has required working hard my entire life, having... I would say an unparalleled and certainly unmatched expertise as a business owner, as a civic leader, as a political leader. There is no one else running for office this year in Georgia who has my experience and who shares my values and who has the commitment to actually doing the work on the ground. A good voter turnout strategy combines message with math. And that's what we're doing differently. So who are your voters? It's essentially new people you're trying to bring to the table, right? These are people who've either been unregistered or unmotivated to participate in these elections in the past. Who are they? Where are they? It's a coalition. So it's a coalition of voters because we're not excluding anyone. Mm -hmm. And, And what we have to be able to get to is the understanding as Democrats that you can talk about engaging voters of color without alienating white voters Mm -hmm. and for me but this is the problem with politics sometimes right is that when you target one group you do tend to alienate another only if the targeting of one group is with a message that is untenable to the other and i don't think it is what i'm saying is i'm not going after republican voters for whom the orthodoxy of being pro-labor 
pro-choice, pro-environment is not a compelling message. Mm-hmm. Those are not my voters. I would love it if they decide to vote for me anyway, but I'm not going to denounce my values in order to convince them to vote. Uh, one good example this week was, I, or last week, I was endorsed by Gabrielle Giffords mm-hmm. uh, on, because of my record on gun safety. I had a conversation with a bunch of sportsmen who were literally buying rifles around me when I talked to them. And the conversation I had with them was, look, you may not agree with me on gun safety issues, but I need you to know that the reason I believe in gun safety is because I know how to shoot. I know how powerful a weapon is. And I need you to know that my principles say that this is where I have to be. And if you can trust me on this, you can also trust me on labor issues. And I got people stood up and clapped. Because we have created this false binary. And what I'm saying is we have to give people credit that if we tell them authentically who we are and we talk about what we want for their lives, they will turn out and vote. But we can't do that by pretending to be something we're not. I'm not a conservative. I'm not a Republican. I'm not going to try to adapt and adopt some of those policies and frames or even the language in order to convince someone who doesn't agree with my basic principles to stand with me. So to your point about new voters, Mm -hmm. my goal is to turn out voters who already agree with me but have never had a candidate to vote for who reflected their values. They never felt motivated enough to show up to vote in the first place. We should talk about your opponent, too, because you have a primary to get through in May uh, before you get to run for the governorship. And um, she's also named Stacy. She is. Stacy Evans. She is a 39-year-old litigator from the Mm -hmm. Atlanta suburbs, I believe. Mm -hmm. She is a white female. Mm -hmm. And she's your only opponent? She is. Is that right now? So this is is what it's come down to now, because a lot of the conversation and the coverage I've been reading, specifically around local politics, is it's become black Stacy versus white Stacy. You're both progressives. A lot of your, um, a lot of you, your, the issues that you champion overlap to some mm-hmm. degree. Um, and so for people out there who haven't felt like there's been a candidate who speaks to them, what is the overwhelming difference that you are selling right now? What is it you can offer sure. that Stacey Evans cannot? I think there are three things. One uh, is experience. Uh, I am not only an attorney, but I'm also a very successful business owner. Mm -hmm. And in that, I've learned how to create jobs, how to retain jobs, how to help small businesses grow. I have the experience of actually leading uh, organizations. I've run companies. I've run organizational models, nonprofits, for-profits. And as a caucus leader, I actually had staff for that as well. So I'm coming to this knowing how to actually be the CEO of the state. I have an unmatched political record. I've won races for Democrats, but I've also been a very successful legislative leader, including helping her build what has been an extraordinary portfolio. And she's done great work on the issues that she's championed. But part of that came about because of my leadership and asking her to carry some of these bills. And third, it's about the values that we hold. Yes, she and I are, we have similar values writ large, but in terms of specific positions we've taken, I've been a strong champion of public education without exception. I have never voted for a gun bill. And those challenges, and but also my successes, are the reason why Emily's List has endorsed me, Gabrielle Giffords has endorsed me, NARAL has endorsed me, mm-hmm. Democracy for America, our labor unions, Every national endorsement that has been <clears throat> issued in this campaign has come to me because when people look at my my record of achievement, they know that I'm the candidate. The second piece is our strategy. I intend to build a coalition of progressive whites, moderate whites, people of color, and then anyone who feels disaffected or left behind. 
but I'm going to center people of color intentionally throughout my campaign because that is the population that has been the least attended to, but is the most loyal to our democratic coalition. And so for me, it's not either or, it's a both and strategy. And I'm the only one who's pushing that strategy aggressively right now and will do so consistently. And then I think the third is this. Uh, when you look at the enthusiasm that turned out voters in Virginia and in New Jersey, if you look at the races that have flipped, people are looking for leadership that reflects who they are and reflects the composition of the world they want to see. And I have spent my time in the legislature building that reflective democracy. Under my leadership, we elected the first Latina we elected the first Korean. We elected the first openly gay man with the largest LGBTQ caucus. We elected African-Americans in majority white districts and Latinos in majority uh, Republican districts. We elected a white guy in a majority black district because I want us to always be able to see ourselves, not just from the superficial, but in terms of our meanings and our values. And I'm when you compare me to, to Miss Evans, I have a stronger record on that. In terms of the national level, I know a lot of those big endorsements have been coming in because Mm -hmm. as your race gets more and more attention coming in for you. But just in Georgia, the political establishment there is still what it is and has been Mm -hmm. for a very long time. It's still largely male, still largely white. Do they support you and your Some candidacy? Some do, and and but let me push back on it being largely white. It is it's majority white, but mm-hmm. not largely white. Okay, uh, which is why I've gotten the support of every one of our congressmen, uh, Democrat congressmen, except for one, and his wife supports me. Um, That's a house divided there. Then, well, I no. wouldn't say divided. He just hasn't endorsed. Okay, he, and he tends not to endorse in primaries. Okay, um, but you know, certainly if he changes his mind, we'd love to have his support. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, I've gotten support from my legislative colleagues. I'm not doing the traditional endorsement list, uh, which is what you tend to see, because in my heart of hearts, I'm still leader of the House. And what I saw happen in 2010 was that when endorsements were being divvied up, it divided people. And we have to still stand together in this next legislative session. So I'm asking my colleagues to support me, but Mm -hmm. not to put their name on a list because it creates a false narrative of who's divided and whether Democrats are divided. So I'm using instead institutional endorsements to signal my principles, but not local endorsements to signal this person likes me and this person doesn't. In the way that people in Georgia are perceiving this contest, though, between you Mm -hmm. and Ms. Evans, do you think that race plays a factor? Do you think people are weighing it? Of course it does. There, There are two questions. One, is Georgia viable? And then two is, am I viable? And, and, and that's not, it's not a bad question, but I think it's the wrong question. When you say viable, though, for the layman, that basically means what? Can people see me in the office? Basically, can a black woman win statewide in Georgia? And it presumes that people can't vote their values without seeing race. I don't want anyone to elect me because I'm black. I don't want anyone to elect me because I'm a woman. But I want them to know that as a black person and a woman who's positioned for this job with my resume, with my experience, that those are two markers that tell them that I will be good at this uh, because I've navigated so much to be in this spot. I, I think the opportunity is for us to not say, am I viable because I'm a black woman. The opportunity is to say, how can we lose when we have someone who brings together so many of the things we want for our state? But, you know, yeah, there are going to be some people who look at me and who think of Gone with the Wind and think, oh, my God, it can't happen in Georgia. 
but it's a very different state. As I said, the demography of Georgia is different. And even though African Americans have not achieved the level of statewide power that we had once, I mean, there had been two, um, Thurbert Baker and uh, Michael Thurman had been two statewide elected African Americans. Mm -hmm. It's been done before. And I think it can be done again. At the same time, if you make it through the primary, you're going you're gonna to need the support of the party absolutely, to help get you across the finish line. And Democrats have a reputation for playing it safe, especially recently, mm-hmm. right? They're, they kind of go with, when there's a chance to make a bold decision, they tend right. not to do it. They never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity, <laughs> as the saying people like to say, right? So you're not the safe choice. You're a single African-American woman who would make history in a number of ways absolutely. if she pulls this off that's not the safe comfortable choice for them are you worried about that dynamic i am not and here's why and i think you're it's a legitimate question and i think there are some who are worried about it but what i have seen in terms of support from not just endorsements but from the the thousands of volunteers we have because of the outreach we've done from the people who are willing to invest in the campaign financially I, i think that this is a moment for bold action Uh, But I'm not counting on that alone. And that's why I'm doing the hard work of building a campaign now that's not only a primary campaign, but also a general campaign. That's not about being presumptive. It's about being strategic. Uh, Because one of the reasons we we revert to the safest position is that we haven't done the work to be ready to be bold. Uh, You know, when I start companies, I do so knowing that I'm trying something new, but that I've got to give people the the credibility and the comfort of knowing that I know what I'm doing. I am on paper and in reality, I'm an amazing candidate. And and that's, you know, that can be seen as somewhat obnoxious, but here's what I mean. We want a CEO of our state who understands the state in every corner. I've been to almost every County in Georgia and I didn't just start this year. I've been doing it for seven years. We want a candidate who knows how to run a business, the business of government. I do. We want a candidate who people want to see and talk to. I'm, you know, people like me. They like talking to me. <laughs> and you want a candidate who believes that government is good and that can it can do things to make their lives better. I know it can because it saved my family. In so many ways, government has made my life possible. There are ways where government has made mistakes and there are places where government does not do its job. But fundamentally, you want someone who believes in the product. And I do. And my responsibility is to make sure that I create the space for people to believe with me. You seem to believe that all things coming together at this time, your experience, uh, your professional life, where Georgia is as a state, Mm -hmm. the needs of the people there, that that will help propel you to victory. And I I was thinking back to some of the things that I read in preparing for this conversation. Some people, there were so many people who were saying you're the smartest person they've ever worked with in politics and you're clearly well qualified. But one other person expressed the concern that you were ahead of your time, that you might be, you know, in four years years, once things have shifted a little bit more and the timing is this or that, that that would be the perfect time. And I wonder what you make of that. Often what people mean with wait four more years is wait till there are more people of color. But that presumes that white women, white men of good intention, of progressive values 
can't make this decision. But isn't that what you're trying to safeguard against, too, by registering more people of color? No, I'm not trying. What I'm trying to do is safeguard against having too many Republicans voting. And my point is, if we don't register and engage our base and our voting base, and when I say base, I mean people who share our values, you can't win an election if if the people who agree with you don't vote and can't vote. And so my mission is to make sure that everyone who agrees with progressive values can vote. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, the New Georgia Project was a C3 project, meaning it was really, it was nonpartisan. But yes, they're more than likely going to vote Democratic. But writ large, I want to make sure progressives are ready to vote because I think there are enough of us in the state. If you darken the blue in our cities, if you get the light blue to go to dark blue, if you get the red to go to pink and you get the pink to go to purple, that's 200,000 votes. That's an election. And so I'm not guarding against it. What I'm saying is let's exploit it. Let's lift it up. Let's amplify it. Let's stop being afraid to be progressives in the South. There are enough of us now, and we don't have to keep waiting four more years. What we have as in this moment is a terrible president who has done everything in his power to diminish the value of people he doesn't think are, are like him. And those people want to be heard. They want their lives to be better. They are terrified that their children are going to be ripped from their arms if they're undocumented. They're worried about their jobs disappearing. They're terrified that healthcare is going to be a thing of the past because they have relied on the exchanges. They need a champion. And I believe that this is the moment. And the moment is now because we've never been so terrified of the future of our country before today. And in the state of Georgia, where we have had so many people do well, but we have so many more people who are struggling, they want to know that they can be a part of success. And I'm a person who knows on every metric how to make that happen if I can work in concert with the citizens of Georgia to get it done. There was another moment in Georgia politics that the rest of the country was paying attention to very closely. Are you talking about Mr. Ossoff? I might be. John Ossoff, (laughs) first-time candidate, running to flip Georgia's Mm -hmm. sixth district. There are some similarities here, not a ton, but uh, you did say, I will point out to you, leading up into his election, you were confident he was going to win. Someone asked you point blank in an interview and you said he will absolutely win this race. He did not. Mm -hmm. You misread that moment. Are you worried you're misreading this moment? Not at all. That moment came closer than people give us credit for. He didn't make it over the top, but he got really, really close. And the composition of the 6th District is very different than the composition of Georgia. The 6th District was largely Republican and had been a 28-point Republican district before that election. And still he came within 800, you know, came terribly close to winning that election. What I would say is I think John made right, smart choices for the race he had to run. But there are some opportunities he didn't have that I will have. I have the opportunity to be unapologetically progressive because I'm not trying to convert any Republicans. If they change and they come with us, I want that. And and please hear me clearly. I'm not saying I don't want your vote. But what I'm saying is I'm not going to moderate my tone or my message to achieve those votes. And that's a luxury I have that he didn't have. I'm also being very thoughtful, intentional early on about the cultural competency of my staff and of the communities we have to go into. And that's another opportunity that 
he got to, but he had a much shorter runway to try to do something that hadn't been done in years, uh, which is make certain that you're growing within communities their capacity to stand with you. I've got a much longer runway. I started in June for a primary that's not until May. That's a luxury of time that he didn't have. And so, yeah, I I try to avoid prognostication because sometimes you're right, sometimes you're wrong. (laughs) But in this one, I'm right. I got to ask you about another specific issue that's come up before. It's probably going to come up again Mm -hmm. in the governor's race. And that is uh, this whole national conversation we're now having around the place of Confederate statues and monuments. There was one article I read, and I wanted to give you a chance to respond to this because your response wasn't included in it. But it had a story from someone from the Sanders campaign who said that when you were a state representative, you were asked to try to push Mm -hmm. an agenda that would call for the removal of Confederate flags from state institutions. This was in the aftermath of the Charleston Mm -hmm. church shooting. said at the time that you refused to do that this is back in 2015 Mm -hmm. but then in august of this year after you'd announced your candidacy for um the gubernatorial race you tweeted after the charlottesville violence that you see no future for confederate monuments and statues in places like this and you specifically called for the faces on stone mountain in georgia to be removed so did you change your mind did you feel more freely to speak now what's the story there Uh, representative jones misremembers what happened Mm. Uh, We were out of session. So uh, if you remember the Charlottesville um, tragedy happened, I think, in June of 2015. The legislative session. Charleston. 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 Yeah. um, Happened in um, June of 2015. The legislative session in Georgia ends uh, in the spring. So we were out of session. Okay. She reached out to me about a, a boycott that she wanted to hold. As the leader of the Democratic caucus, I deferred to the Black caucus, which is also a body within the state house. Mm -hmm. And that's a composition of all the black legislators. They had already signaled an interest in taking up that issue. And I deferred to the Black caucus on that issue because that was something they'd they'd said they wanted to work on. And so I took a step back as leader because that was what they wanted to do. The legislation she mentioned, she had never present it to the caucus. Uh, There's a process where if you have legislation that you want to have considered, you introduce it and we put put it before the rest of the caucus to vote on yes or no, whether we want to include it in our agenda. She never submitted. Uh, And that would have happened basically in November, December of 2015. Mm -hmm. She did not introduce that legislation. So at the time you felt it was in the right hands, it's in the hands of the Black Caucus. If they're going to move forward with it, they will do what needs to be done. Absolutely. And and if if people remember, well, what happened in Charleston was very much a racially motivated attack. Mm -hmm. And in my mind, it was the absolutely right thing to do to defer to my colleagues who were members of the Black Caucus for whom this was a front and center issue. Now, that said... I grew up in Mississippi. I grew up near Jefferson Davis's home mm-hmm. and had to go visit it as a high, as a elementary school student. Is it an abomination to walk through the space where people are glorifying the murder of slaves and worse to live in a state that flies the Confederate flag as part of the state flag. I have a visceral reaction to the Confederate monuments because I know their history. I know that they were not put up in the wake of the Civil War. They were put up in the wake of Reconstruction. They were designed for domestic terrorism. And the monument at Stone Mountain was was purchased. The land was purchased by the people who brought back the KKK in Georgia. And they intentionally ceded it to the Daughters of the Confederacy because they wanted to continue this you know, reign of terror against people of color, namely black people. So if when asked the question, and I tweeted in response to a question we'd gotten, mm-hmm. 
Do I believe that Confederate monuments deserve a place of honor in our state? No. How we get there, I'm open to suggestion. But as a matter of first principles, do I believe that we should celebrate domestic terrorism? No, I do not. Would this be a priority for you if you were to become governor? It would be a priority for me for us to have this conversation about how do we get to the place where we address this. And I want people to know where I want us to get to. Mm -hmm. I want us to get to these things are no longer in places of honor supported by state dollars. What I recognize, and this goes back to our earlier conversation about negotiation and discussion, we have to get there together as a state. Um, and I believe the Confederate monuments should come down. I believe that the, that Stone Mountain in particular is deeply disturbing and problematic. And I want to understand how we can best address it. And I will say this, after I sent out my tweet, I got a number of really thoughtful responses from people who didn't necessarily agree with me fundamentally on the removal, but had amazing ideas about what we could do. Because my issue is making sure we alter that 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 edifice so that it is no longer a celebration of three men who tried to destroy America through treason and whose you know progenitor whose four you know followers attempted to terrorize blacks and Jews in the state of Georgia. I've got to ask you, when you look back at your lengthy career now already, you've had so many careers, so much success, as you mentioned, in the private industry as well, educationally, before you even got into the workforce, you occupy such a unique space. And I wonder, when you reflect back on it now, what was the hardest part? Was it getting, you know, getting the acceptance letter into college? Was it finding (laughs) the first job after school? Was it, was it, getting through that first election when you look back on it now what was the biggest hurdle for you probably the first election was the hardest piece why Um, is that because as much as i love policy and am good at politics i'm actually an introvert are you really i am running for office yes because i found that running is more efficient than asking people to do it for me <laughs> um, but believe me i tried for a really long time that's why i was a deputy city attorney that's why i focused on public policy i was very happy to be a good bureaucrat to help other people do this work um, but what i found is that no one speaks better of your goals and your intentions than you do poverty is is obscene it is We've become too comfortable with it. We've become comfortable as a society with the lack and the deprivation. And I think it's immoral. I think it's economically inefficient. And the more I did the work I could, the more I realized we needed leaders, especially at the state level, who shared my conviction that this is a solvable problem. And then I realized that person was me. Uh, but that was going to require that I knock on doors and talk to people. My um, my best friend, when I called her and told her I was running for office, once she stopped laughing, because she said, she's like, you realize you're going to have to actually talk to them for them to was vote for you. Was that the first thing she said? Yes, yeah. she did. After the, the laughter died down. <laughs> and she said, and you know, you have to talk to each of them. And I was like, yeah, I know. Um, she said, well, how are you going to do that? I'm like, I don't know. Because I'm, I'm not, I mean, I'm not shy, but I, I find it. It's sometimes exhausting. Uh, But what I learned from the experience, uh, number one, you shouldn't pray before you knock on a door that no one's home um, because it doesn't work. Yes. Um, Also, not not like, yeah, it doesn't sustainable over time. Yeah. Although, you know, I got my prayers in. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But the, the piece was that when I finally started talking to voters, 
I wasn't talking about me. I was talking about them. And that was much more comfortable for me. Uh, My team and my campaign, my team at at the caucus, we had a rule. Your answer when someone calls, you don't say, you know, what do you need? You say, how can I help? That for me is comfortable. That for me is why I do this. And it took me a while to realize that if I began with that, how can I help? Number one, I would learn more and I would be better at my job. But number two, it stopped being about my discomfort and became about how can I use these privileges that I have, this privilege of education, of capacity. Um, I'm not afraid of a lot of things. How can I use this to help other people? And, you know, it's also difficult to realize that that's where you want to be, because that means you're going to have to ask people over and over again to tell you they like you, which is what happens in elections. And there's a chance they could tell you no. And that is not fun, <laughs> especially when you're raising money to you know, ask people to like you and you raise a lot of money and then you're like, yeah, I don't really like you that much. I like the other guy. So my mission has been to avoid that consequence, <laughs> but to do the work so that people believe and trust that I want what's best and that I'm willing to work to get it done. Before I let you go, really quickly, um, and you've been so generous with your time, thank, thank you. you. A lot of people know you by another name. <laughs> yes. I gotta ask, because this blows my mind. <laughs> you Between 2001 and 2009, you penned eight romance suspense novels, yes. is the category they fall mm-hmm. under, under the pen name Selena Montgomery. Yes. How? Why? <laughs> what? What? Where did that come from? I love writing. I, I love reading. I began reading when I was really young. I don't remember not reading, and I've always loved writing. I've written country music. I went through a phase where I was a country music writer. I had a song um, about you had a song. No, 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 yeah. no, never. Had, only okay. I. I know it. Uh, it was about what was the um, title of the song? It was um, tractors. So the lyric was, "I've had my heart run over again and again by too many tractors ra- masquerading as men." Um, I okay. thought it was good. I yeah. thought it was clever. Masquerading's yeah. top, but yeah, no, yeah. I got like the but you tra- gotta, yeah. you gotta do tractors, the, the love, yeah, yeah, over again and again by too many tractors masquerading as men. Anyway, so did that. Saying, keep it in a file folder exactly. Somewhere in case I you can come back to it. Yeah. So law school third year wanted to write a novel, wanted to try a spy novel based yeah. on my ex boyfriend's dissertation. He was a chemical physicist, and I had this great idea. And I realized um, through conversations that publishers didn't think that women read spy novels and that men would read a spy novel by or about women. And this, you have to remember, this is the late 90s. Okay. And more than that, my main character was African-American. And I wasn't going to change that because it was basically who I would have been if I gotten to be a spy. So I just uh, looked around. I'm like, I know I've read espionage with women in it. Yeah. And it turns out that was in romantic suspense. Uh, that and General Hospital. Uh, <laughs> Because <laughs> I'd watched General Hospital and WSB. And so I was like, ah, I'll just make my spies fall in love. I'll kill the same number of people, but they'll fall in love at the end. And the editor bought it, and then she bought two more. And then another editor came to me and bought my first serial killer romance novel. And then uh, I went to HarperCollins, and they bought four more. No, you're not shy about this. Are you worried oh, no, people no. will look at this and say, I, why should I take her seriously? She's writing these things on the side. So my stories are about chemical physicists and ethnobotanists and cognitive <laughs> scientists. Um, I write about all the jobs I wish I could have had that I never had and the different lives I could have led. But I also try to write smart, fun novels that people want to read. Uh, my parents are ministers, so I also write novels that my mom and, my mom and dad can read. <laughs> I'm very c- careful about that. So it's not the more, it's not 50 50 shades of anything in these books. (laughs) 
Um, but Are you working on more? I, well, I'm actually I have a book coming out in April. Mm-hmm. It's called the It's called Minority Leader. It's about not how, romance. It's best. not romance at all. Um, although there's a romantic notion that people will fall in love with my story. Um, it is your personal story. It is. It's a it's memoir mixed with. Um, real life advice it's called how minority leader how to lead from the outside and create change and it's really about how i've learned to take what are seen as minority positions either being you know undercounted or discounted and how to leverage those into things that help you attain power and and really build your leadership skills i mean i've been deeply blessed in my life and um i think it's very hard to to understate or to overstate where I could be right now were it not for these moments that have changed who I am and the extent to which I can bring that to others through my writing through my legislating through you know my governing you know that's an extraordinary opportunity and so uh, you know I'm privileged to be able to write it down so some folks can read it and if they see something they like they can take credit for it. Leader Stacey Abrams, running for governor in the great state of Georgia. Thanks so much for being here today. I appreciate it. This has been delightful. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Uncomfortable. If you like what we're doing, take a minute, leave us a rating and a quick review. It helps others to find these conversations, and we really just want to hear what you think. Plus, we've made it easy. Just click on the link in the description of this episode. If you have an idea for a show topic or a guest, leave it in the reviews or tweet at me at Navazistan. That's N-A-W-A-Z-I-S-T-A-N or use the hashtag Uncomfortable Talk. Uncomfortable is a production of ABC News. New episodes post every two weeks on Tuesday mornings. I'm Amna Navaz. Thanks for listening.